Hello and welcome to the Under Pressure Podcast. I'm your co-host, Matt Ellis, and joining me as he always does is Jake Barker. And today we will be looking at some more documentaries that have caught our eye over the summer months, including Melbourne's controversially named To Helen Back YouTube series, Drive to Survive, Season 2 on Netflix, and the highly regarded The Test on Amazon Prime, giving us an inside look in Justin Langer's first 15 months as coach of the Australian cricket team. Jake, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been good, actually. I've, I've tuned into a lot of, a lot of documentaries this week. Uh, obviously, I watched the uh, episode three and four of The Last Dance. As, as, as you heard, it was coming out on the Monday. So, yeah, I, I tuned into that. It's another, another great two episodes there. I, this week, I've, been, I've actually been watching old grand finals, old AFL grand finals. Awesome. Weird. Yeah, I've been recapping my grand final knowledge from... Uh, 1997 was the first one I watched. Yep. And that, yep. Was, that was between Adelaide and St Kilda, I believe, I think. And, yeah, so I've been watching from there and I've uh, been making my way through, yet to make it to your favourite grand final of Essendon versus Melbourne in 2000. <laughs> so, oh, that, yeah, that one's coming soon. Pretty average game, that. I've, I've watched that one recently and don't really want to talk about it. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's probably fair enough. I've yeah, so yeah, tuning into some old grand finals and because I didn't really watch them when I was younger, so yeah, it's good to good to watch them and see all the old players. Kind of weird yeah. watching them run around that now they're coaches and things like that. So mm. yeah, my I strongly recommend out. the uh, two thousand and eight grand final. I, I hear that was an absolute classic. Oh, yeah, I might have to get into that, but then I'll watch the oh seven, nine, and eleven after that maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah that's a good idea. Uh, to be honest, I, I would I, I would skip that whole Geelong period. I, not very good footballers, pretty average football. The rules were much better than what they were now. You you don't need to watch it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. I understand why you wouldn't want to watch it. Haven't watched greatness for a while. Oh, I watched enough. it for a few weeks in uh, 2018, but that was about it. Yeah, that's yeah. All right, fair enough. What have you been? What have you been watching this week? I've been watching to? some uh, F1 highlights um, from previous races. I watched the 2012 Brazilian Grand Prix, which was the final race of the year, and the championship was decided in that race. And I've actually watched last year's German Grand Prix, which is probably my favourite. Uh, F1 race of all time. Um, just the weather made it really interesting. It was um, controversially, uh, Lewis Hamilton got a five-second time penalty. Probably should have been a greater, harsher penalty um, <laughs> because he sort of missed the entrance to the pit lane when, and when he crashed. Yeah, it was... Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. So, yeah... Um, as I said earlier, one of the podcasts we're going to be looking into is the Melbourne's YouTube podcast, uh, To Hell and Back. It was, to be honest, I thought it was a brilliant podcast. I would have made one change to the entire podcast, and that's actually the yeah, name. I think. I think the name... Yeah, that's fair enough. I think if it was two days after Melbourne winning the grand final, and then they released it after that and called it To Hell and Back, Perfect name, brilliant documentary, no issues. 
but makes Melbourne a little more sense as well. Yeah, Melbourne haven't yet got to the back. They're still in my mind trying to exit hell, and I think they they did a lot of things right over the off season. Um, I wouldn't say it was a perfect off season for Melbourne. I think. I would have kept one of the players that we traded um, in Sam Frost, but that's uh, just my opinion. Um, but the series was really good. It gave really good insight into Darren Burgess, which was one of the big footy department moves of the entire off-season for any club. And when you can get arguably Australia's best fitness guru that's worked with the likes of Liverpool and Arsenal in your club... Yeah manage your fitness program you're gonna ex- I, I i think that will fix results and bear in, in my mind melbourne's melbourne had two issues last year um one of that was game fitness um was an issue that we had throughout the entire off season and the other was just actually kicking goals like we were we we were we were strug- melbourne struggled um to get marks inside 50 and then they struggled to when they did to kick goals. They kicked a lot of behinds. Behinds cost Put us... Put scores quite, on the board to win. Yeah. Uh, behinds cost us in quite a few games. We almost beat um, the West Coast Eagles, I think, in Perth. But unfortunately, we didn't kick straight. And we also had a... I think it was against Adelaide in the Northern Territory, another game where we should have won, or, but just didn't quite cross the line. So it's going to be... An interesting year for Melbourne. I think one of the issues that they did address was fitness and Darren Burgess completely ticks that box. And looking at the players on what they've said through Instagram and actually before the coronavirus situation, actually uh, watched a Melbourne training session. The training intensity from last year had, has clearly lifted and the players looked looked significantly fitter and working harder. So I think... There's a lot of positives to come from that, but the jury's still out if Melbourne can kick goals. And the documentary showed some really good moments. I think the fitness stuff that Burjo was setting, um, the challenge day where he didn't exactly tell the players what they were going to be doing and they just went for it, uh, was brilliant. Um, and I, yeah, thought it really, I think it really gave the average person in the insight into what an elite sporting program is. Many people think, you know, these players just train, they work on their footy skills, but they don't take into account the brutality um, of what a training program is to get fit for a whole AFL season. Yeah, hundred percent. I remember um, Darren Burgess obviously worked with Port Adelaide as well. Not long ago before his stint over in the Premier League. And I believe that was 2014 when the Power made the, that prelim final. The years that he was, the years that he were there were the years that Port Adelaide was successful. Yeah, correct. So every year that he was in the AFL was a success. So you'd think if you think that's why Melbourne has got him on board. They want success. They want to put in the work. The players want to put in the work. And hopefully this come this comes to fruition and the Melbourne players realise what they need to do to be able to come out at the end and be like that Port Adelaide team of those years ago because they were very successful. They were half a kick away from a grand final in 2014. They almost beat Hawthorne. And a, so and a, couple, of umpire, and a couple of controversial umpiring decisions as well for memory. 
yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. So and yeah, you, you and just show how successful he's been. And the other thing is, just looking at the type of AFL season you've got, if you could pick your fitness guru to have now, because my the AFL clubs are about to get a one month head start of pre-season or a mid-season pre-season. Um, yeah, he this he could he could be a significant piece in success. I'm not saying Melbourne will be successful, but I'm saying having someone of that ilk in your fitness stuff must play a huge part for the demons. And I think they've got a bit of an advantage there in a fitness department. It's all about have they fixed the game plan issue that they had from round one. Brilliant from the back. Just that kick in to your Ford 50 that Melbourne have been rubbish with for the last 10 years. If they can get that right, Melbourne can can improve. But getting back to the documentary, I also thought the there were a couple of really nice moments in it and one of them was um about Cousy Pickett who is one of our new recruits and it was just a moment yep. he was on the beach struggling with the crab crawl and every single Melbourne player got behind him got behind him it's good signs isn't it? some of them did it with him and they're the signs that as a supporter you want to see the club getting in there and supporting young players and it's it really shows a team camaraderie respect and Pickett round one played a phenomenal game he was he kicked a, two or three goals and just looked at home and it's his um I think uncle Byron Pickett played uh, played for Melbourne I think that uh uncle is the connection but he does have a connection to the footy club uh another good moment Another good moment for the club to show insight into was the Max Scorn becoming captain and Jack um, moving back from captain to vice-captain. Really good to see some insight into that. Um, It it must be hard for Jack. I think Jack is definitely a leader of the Melbourne Footy Club. Um, But the way that it was showed, it, it really sort of showed while he's not captain, he's still 100% behind Max and the rest of the boys and he is he knows he is a future leader of the club and I think it's actually a really good leadership group model that Melbourne have done. They've just done Max Gorn captain, Jack Viney vice captain, that's the leadership group. Yeah, no, I kind of like that as well. You got your two guys and it's not like Jack's not leading from the front either. He's yeah. he's the vice captain of, of an AFL football club. People are going to be looking up to him. Mm asking him about things. He's going to lead from yeah. the front anyway, yeah. regardless yeah. of his vice cap. Yeah. Regardless of the title, he's still going to lead. An example that I'm going to use is um, actually Steve Smith in the Australian summer and the Ashes last year. He's no longer captain. He's banned from being a captain, but natural leadership <coughs> still showed in the way that he can pose himself on the field, supporting Tim Payne with field placings and everything. You don't need a title to be a leader of the footy club. Um, that being said, I would have loved to have seen Neville Jetta be included in that lead, in maybe a captain and two vice captains. I, I think, I think it's just weird now seeing a leadership group of two people. It's so not the norm. It's you. You now think actually, I want this person to also be vice captain and this. And I think Melbourne are very lacking the leadership department because I've also still got Nathan Jones 
their former captain and still aren't playing on the park. Well, yeah, exactly. I was going to point that out, actually. What did you think of the... Uh, well, I think it was in the first episode where they, they showed the process of Jonesy telling the playing group about how he was stepping down and how it was the right time for him, but he was still committed to play, but he, he felt like it was the right time to step aside and let someone else take the reins. What do you think about that? Personally, I, I think it is 100% the correct decision. Um, tough decision yeah, I, to be made. I, I agree as well. Um, but it was actually really emotional. Um, yeah, I got the feeling I, through the uh, episode as much as it was very... This is going to sound weird. As much as I'd love to see Max live that Premiership Cup with Simon Goodwin in the future, I'd actually rather see Nathan Jones lift it up. Because, and that's nothing against Max. It's just when Melbourne was absolute garbage, Nathan Jones was our best player. He could have gone to other clubs. He could have gone and had success elsewhere, but no, he stayed at the club. That too, Max Gorn has also stayed through that period. So it's, it's just, you still sort of, I still sort of see Jonesy as that older statesman, the one that you want to see get the success. And I think a lot of people in the AFL think he is one of the most deserving players for success in the competition. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think, I think you're right. I think eighty percent of Melbourne fans would love to see him holding up the cup with Goody if, if Melbourne were to win a flag 100% I'd also love to see Max do it just I just want to see Jones do it a tiny bit more um, yeah I, I know I, I yeah I get that I reckon hand to heart every Melbourne supporter would go would love to see Jonesy do it not against Max doing it but I would prefer yeah. Jonesy to hold the cup up um, but that was Definitely, it was actually. Real, I found it a bit emotional. I think I actually teared up a little bit with the uh, Jones um, stepping aside. But the other bit that I found really interesting is the whole Harley Bennell situation. Um, yeah, that was interesting, actually. I. The thing is, Melbourne gave up nothing for Harley Bennell. They, they're just paying him a rookie rook rate wage. Um, didn't have to give up any picks or anything. And the thing is, Melbourne have nothing to lose with it. If, if it's a success, Melbourne are, conceived, are viewed as geniuses who have, who have done one of the best recruitments of the last five, six years. It would be up there with Hawthorne and Tom Mitchell. Or it would be actually, I'd say, better or on par with that. And if it doesn't work out, there's nothing really lost. No, exactly right. Um, yeah, 100% agree. It'll be interesting to see with list sizes being reduced, what happens there. But I'd love to see if Benel, if, if Benel can play half a season, I'd expect Melbourne to play finals. You reckon he's going to make that much, of, that much of an impact after not playing for so long? I remember a game, it was Melbourne v Gold Coast. And Gary Ablett played a blinder of a game. And Harley Bennell played an even better game. It was probably one of the best performances I've ever seen on a footy field. This was against Melbourne years ago, and it was just a phenomenal game. If his talent's there and he can get that out onto the park, I think that is a brilliant thing. 
for the competition and Melbourne. I, I think he could be a finals factor. Factor. Um, so for those wanting to know, how, yeah, for those wanting to know how to watch this podcast, uh, this documentary, it's on YouTube and the Melbourne website. Um, each episode's about twenty minutes and really good insight. Um, and it's really good to actually see um, internal stuff from the footy clubs. And I hope more footy clubs do it because it was, as a Melbourne supporter, absolutely brilliant to watch. And we haven't really seen those internal documentaries in Australian footy clubs as of yet. And it was, we've done it. There's been a little bit of Collingwood and Essendon, but this was the first sort of real big investment into an AFL club. Yeah, definitely. I, lo- I loved it as well. I'd love, I'd love if every AFL club could do this because it would give more knowledge to those watching fans, media personalities. It would just give a huge insight to the AFL clubs and how they run. And even if it's not just the players, it's, it's, it's watching the coaches and watching the executives and what, watch what everyone does and work out, how, how they run, how football clubs run and what they do. So, yeah, it was a great initiative there by Melbourne. So, yeah, it was a great watch and I hope some more AFL clubs follow, follow suit in the, in the future, that's for sure. Yeah, and the, the next one documentary, um, and to be honest, I'm yet to decide if this is my favourite sports documentary or if it's the test, is Formula One Drive to Survive Season 2. Season one, it came out on Netflix. Um, both season one and season two came out about a week or two prior to the Australian Grand Prix, the season opener each year. And yep. the first season was solid. The first season was, this is brilliant. It growed the sport in America. Um, a few people became instant icons of the sport. Um, Daniel Ricardo's popularity uh skyrocketed particularly in America and he credited the show and um, the Haas team principal, uh, Gunther Steiner, also gained a lot more traction and popularity um, with many people believing it was from this documentary. And in season two, um, they actually had all teams agree to participate. In uh, season one, Ferrari and Mercedes said, uh, no, we, we're not going to allow internal camera work. And huge shame, two of the best teams. But this documentary, it showed many storylines that you sort of forget happened across the season, like um, Haas losing their title sponsor, um, the driver conflicts, you you could say, with Haas. Um, Well, it was a huge storyline. You remembered it, the downfall of Pierre Gasly and Red Bull and the rise of Alex Elbon into Red Bull. Yeah. But um, the storyline that um, I love the most um, was actually at Williams, the team that came last. And this was... Uh, yes. This was right back in testing and around the first Grand Prix where their technic- uh, head of technical development of the car, Paddy Lau, um, went on leave from the team and there were a lot of issues. The um, For those that don't know, F1, you get eight days of test in a year where you run laps outside of a Grand Prix weekend to get data on the car to find out how many Ks it can do. 
most people aim to do about 100, 120 laps a day. Um, if you're doing that, you're having a really good day. And Williams missed the first two days of the test for parts, and there were a lot of issues. And um, Paddy Lowe, who was the, one of the masterminds behind um, Mercedes resurgence in 2014 that has helped Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg win world championships, moved to the team a couple of years ago. And yeah. one of the most trusted, respected men in the sport. And it all went wrong. Uh, we don't know exactly what went, went wrong. But what I loved about the documentary was you actually got to see some, um, internal reactions of the um, key team personnel that you would not see on a standard news coverage of a race, race Formula One weekend. There was an encounter between where Claire Williams, the deputy team principal, who is essentially the boss of the team, um, arrived in Spain with parts for the car. And um, one of F1's chief journalists was commentating on this during the documentary and says, it's not rare for parts to come from the factory during testing. What is rare is for senior team management to be delivering those parts to the track. And um, she gets in there, she says, hi to everyone. She says, hi to um, just general team mechanics and whatnot. And then Patty Lau says, hi, Claire. And she ignores him and then just gives her, gives him the, the look, the look of, I don't want to talk to you. And then they talk and it's like, how was your flight? Um, then Patty says, how was your flight? And she says, it was good. It was early. And it just went, you knew that the relationship was beyond repairable between the two of them. One of them had to yeah, go. Completely broken. Yeah, it completely broken. Completely broken. And um, Patty Lau takes um, indefinitely from the team and later um, leaves the team. And as much as that was sad, it was, it was sad to watch because... Paddy is one of the nice guys at the Formula One paddock. And just to see it all unfold, it was really sad. And you got to see stuff that you wouldn't see on um, normal coverage. You got to see reactions of the team. You could see that the relationship had broken down. And it was just, it, to me, it was the best moment I've ever seen on a sporting documentary, just to see yes, we've got a disastrous situation here, but to just see the team's reaction was brilliant. And um, Will Buxton then um, raised the question, who is to blame for Williams's um, failures? The person that was in charge of car development or the person yep. who hired the person to be in charge of car development? So what he's essentially saying is, should Paddy Lau be held responsible? Or should Claire Williams, who is the daughter of the team founder, so Frank Williams, who is the team principal, but it's sort of just the title now for him, be responsible? Who is responsible and where does the bus stop? And, and coming into this season, that's a question. Williams need a good year this year. They've got one of the most talented drivers on the track in George Russell. And... They've also got um, um, a paid driver called uh, Nick, Nicholas Lafarty, I think. Uh, he's a Canadian driver, never raced in Formula One, but has got a resume that 
deserves Formula One. So the question for Williams is, they have a bad year this year. Should more heads roll at Williams? And that's just a really interesting storyline that is going to unfold this year. And Williams are a small team. So money and the COVID situation isn't going to help them. Yep, go. I just just want to know what, what, who you think, who you think's at fault, who who you think's going to take most of the brunt if, if Williams does have a, a poor season, if, if it does keep going. It's hard. I, I think as much as Paddy deserves a spot on the grid, I think he had to go relationship was done. And when you're not in favor with the boss who happens to be the daughter of the founder, it's, it's going to be hard. So I think I'm not going to answer that now. I'm going to see what happens in three or four races time to see where Williams is. Cause if, if it's the same old Williams this year, two seconds a lap slower than the car in front, more changes need to be made. If they improve, let's see them stick on that path. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's a very yeah. It's a very wise decision. I think give it a bit more time, and you'll probably get your answer out of the next three or four races. Like you said, yeah. you'll find out whether they're still having issues or whether they are making those steady improvements to become a much better team in the future. And then there's the Amazon uh, series, the test. And I loved it. I don't know about you, but I loved it. Oh, I've, I've, I think I've watched every episode two or three times already. It's, it's something that always goes on. If I'm, I'm thinking of something to watch, it's, it's, it's such an amazing piece of work that right through the whole, whole episodes, from one to eight, I think it is. There's eight episodes of it. It's outstanding. And it gives you such a, such a, what's the word I'm looking for? Such a zest for, a zest for life, wanting more out of the documentary. It's, it's amazing. Every episode gives you something that you, you didn't know, something that it's so interesting that you wouldn't have thought have hap- has happened before. It, it was one of those documentaries that I think will be watched for years and years to come. It's going to be, and I wouldn't be surprised if with how well this one has done, whether they were to do it again and whether, they would, whether they'd ask the Australian cricket team, all, all things bearing, if they go on a successful run, maybe they'll try and use the, uh, successful times rather than using those non-successful times with the sandpaper and all that. Maybe they build one, build one up from being a successful team and showing the difference between building from the low of the lows right up to when they were a successful team and then going from that successful team and going even further and becoming the best team in the world in all I'd love to see that type of documentary as well, rather than going from low to high, just all high would be even amazing as well. And I think for me, the, the for me, the key takeaways were you see the development of Manus Lebeshain quite heavily from him debuting in the UAE to him coming in, in the Sri Lankan series 
where no one thinks he's capable of playing Test cricket as a specialist batsman, to then going to England and then coming in for the concussed Steve Smith and absolutely filling Steve Smith's shoes as the only bat- yeah. Australian batsman who can actually hold up a an end at the crease. It was it was brilliant, and for me. I had a few moments that I thought were key. I thought the Steve Smith concussion in the second test was conveyed beautifully and it gave us insight to the mind of Steve Smith, which was brilliant. And then you see him watching Australia on the on that day in the third test where Ben Stokes plays the best knock of cricket I have ever seen in my life to win England the game. And you see him going, hey, why aren't we bringing the field in? We should be bringing the field in the last ball to stop the single. We can give away the four or six to Ben Stokes, but we can't give away the single for him to remain on strike. And you yeah. just think he is, he is tactically captain material for Australia moving forward. But has he re-earned the privilege to captain Australia again has he sorted those leadership issues that he obviously had? That was, for me, another great moment of the documentary. And I thought they really did that period really well. Um, I actually yeah. thought that... I also thought each episode got better and better as far as the storylines. And obviously, it sort of did also coincide with a, towards the end with a World Cup and a National Series, the two biggest things in world cricket but i thought it was really good yeah i I think they did it really well even even the tour even the tour in india was well portrayed as well i thought that was fantastic but yeah leading leading from india going into the ashes and the world cup it was it was a it was a big few months there for australia It it was one of the one of the busiest schedules and playing some of the best teams at their chosen formats as well. Like it was, it was crazy going from in England playing that ODI series and losing pretty substantially to at the end coming out with an Ashes victory. Like that's two ends of the scale right there. At the start of the series, yeah. they're part of the ODI series, they're five O down. And then in the Ashes series, Albeit to all, they come away with the Ashes win, and it's fantastic. So I think what they portrayed and did in that whole time while they're in England was was amazing, as well as the World Cup. Even though we all know what happened in that World Cup, we won't we won't we won't draw on that too much because we uh, it was a bit of a strange finish to that as well. So yeah, and also the other moment, and a little bit of a less serious moment in the documentary was the Love Cafe that I I thought was brilliant. Uh, for those that don't know the Love Cafe part, it's... That was um, hilarious. That was so funny. Um, it is the Adam Zampa and Marcus Stoinis relationship, which we've known has been odd for a while. And it was just brilliant to see the, those two react because we always have sort of, said that they've been a bit odd. You see them in the team photos or whenever the camera in a game goes to them, they do uh, different things that are a little bit different. And you just see 
the coffee that they make and it's just just brilliant and the other moment I liked and this is probably the, I think the last moment we're going to speak about today in the documentaries is Mitch Marsh and why he is probably arguably one of Australia's most important cricketers and I think many people have criticised the selectors for continually picking him. But in England, he knew that he wasn't going to be playing every test. He wasn't going to play the first test. And he knew that he, he, he said, I want to become the best squad member in the squad. And he said, guys, every day at this time, I'm going to go out and get a coffee. Come join me. And as the tour goes on, you've got one, maybe two players joining. And then by the end, Pretty much the whole squad going to get coffee with uh, Mitch Marsh, and it's just that he he's was bringing the team together. And I think many people don't look at Mitch Marsh as the great team player that he is. And I thought that really spoke huge character, um, huge volumes about his character. Yeah, it did. It did really give me an insight to Mitch Marsh. Actually, I obviously I've been known to not be the biggest fan of him, but when you get documentaries like these and they show the personalities of so many different players, I think it does change your mind a little bit. As, as you said, Mitch Marsh was trying to be a leader and bring the team together. And I thought that was, I thought that was fantastic. And obviously he wants to be a part of that as, as all the players do, but he was trying to bring everyone together and, and get this and get this thing done. So that we become closer, become closer on the field. And then that just helps with the whole cohesion of the Australian cricket team when they go out onto the field. It starts with a coffee, but it could end with an Ashes win. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, it's amazing what that something that small can do. And remember, at the start of the documentary, when they go to Abu Dhabi for the tests against Pakistan he was appointed vice captain of the Australian cricket team. And you now understand why he was appointed into the, such a high role at the time. Yeah, none of us completely knew why, why is Mitch Marsh, the Australian vice captain, none of us like him, but watching the documentary, you actually see how much you love him. And it, I thought it was a brilliantly made pod uh, documentary. And it, to me, being an F1 cricket fan, I can't decide which one I like more. I think they're both phenomenal sporting documentaries um, that have been conveyed. And it'll, I think, yeah, it's a great, just a brilliant documentary. I think with all the three that we've spoken about today, I think each of them has some, has a different point that you can take out of it. And I think that's what, that's what a documentary is. If you can take something that you didn't know and, and learn about, uh, learn about that, learn about cricket, learn about F1, and learn about the Melbourne Football Club, it's, it just enhances your knowledge and everyone else's knowledge of, of every sport. And I think if you can just take one little thing out of each, that's, that, that's perfect and that's, that's what they want you to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, that will almost leave us for today. Um, so, yeah, have a great couple of days watching sport, Jake. I know uh, hopefully you can uh, watch the 2008 Grand Final a couple of times. But yeah, yeah, I might just I might just skip over that one. Maybe we'll we'll see, we'll see how we go. But yeah, Matt and I had a bit of a discussion when we we're 
we've uh, introduced some social media into the into the podcast. So we've got an Instagram and Twitter handle. It's uh, under pressure one underscore. So at, at under pressure one underscore for all of you. So they're both the same. So if you look them up, you'll see you'll see the under pressure social medias. And also, don't forget, obviously, to tune in, subscribe to Apple Podcasts and Under Pressure. Also on Podbean as well, the uh, app on both the iTunes Store and the Google Play Store. So thank, thanks to Matt for joining me today to do this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed the Under Pressure podcast and we'll see you on the next one.